You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 52 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you now? Well, I'm just sort of sitting here thinking to myself, Valerie, we're one year old today. I know. Can you believe it? I, I can't. No. It's gone very fast, hasn't it? It's gone very fast. Did so you... it's kind of like a year ago I was talking to Graham Simpson about yeah. the Rosie Project and look how ama- look at all the amazing things he's done. Probably a little bit over a year because we have had a little break over Christmas and stuff. But even yes. so, it's, it's fantastic. And so many of the people that we've talked to on the program over the last year have just done amazing things. Like fantastic. Kate Forsyth just tweeted that she sold a million books. Well done, I mean, Kate. Go, Kate, which nearly made me fall over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody's just doing amazing stuff. I'm, And so many of the people that we've talked to have been on prize lists and mm. have been, I don't know, I feel kind of proud, don't you? Well, of course, it's all because of us. Oh, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. We have driven all their success. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what have uh, you been up to this week? I've had a really exciting week. I went to um, the Big Smoke last week and uh, I went to Booktopia. Mm. Hi, John from Booktopia and everyone else. Andrew, hi. Um, I went and signed books in there and uh, we did a video interview, which is, I've got to tell you, the video interview is not my favourite form (laughs) of interview. I would much rather sit in my pyjamas in my office and do an audio. But, um, yeah, so we did a video interview. It was very exciting. I got to have a look at their warehouse, which is massive. Oh. They have, like, conveyor belts that carry <laughs> – oh, honestly, it's like being in a little cartoon. But, yeah, it was awesome. I, I, I had a great day, really, really good day. Met with my publisher, you know, fantastic stuff. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, really fun. There's days like that that I think, yes, this is, like, this is what it's all supposed to be like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one day in every 365, but there you go. Wandering around publishers, signing I books. Know. I know, drinking coffee, so much coffee. Oh, man. <laughs> you can imagine, can't you? I was a full-on chipmunk by 5 o'clock. But anyway, um, what about you? What were you up to? I had one of those bitsy kind of weeks, you know, that a bit of this and a bit of that. And, it's, yeah, didn't, I didn't flow this week, unfortunately. But that's okay. Oh. Every so often you need a bitsy week, you know. I think listeners will probably be really sick of hearing about my air conditioning sagas. But they should end today because as we speak, the air conditioning men are finally sorting out the mighty air conditioner. So it's just been one of those weeks that has, you know, been a bit stop-start. So not as exciting as yours, I have to say. No, that's okay. I I mean, I get one exciting week in 52 (laughs) and you get way more than that. So I feel all right about that. (laughs) So let's see what's been happening in the world of um, blogging, publishing and writing this week. Before we actually, before we get on to that news, uh, I just want to respond to a comment that was on our 
uh, show notes. And it was from Tracy. So thank you for the comment, Tracy, because we really appreciate hearing your thoughts, just in case other people uh, think this as well. And Tracy has said, very respectfully, can I check something with you? Are the plugs you do during your program paid for or just things you're genuinely enthusiastic about? Love, love, love your program, but got curious during the light and easy chat. <laughs> the light and easy chat. Well, I have to say, I can see how she may have got the end of that stick because you were very enthusiastic about the light and easy program. But it was just so convenient. You just reach into the fridge, you pull out the packet that says Wednesday. I know. We did all that. We've been through that. I laughed at, I laughed at you last week. I don't need to do it again. But I think we need to make it quite clear that yes. we, we don't get paid for anything. Um, we only talk about things that we genuinely like. There's or, no, or don't like, or don't like, or don't like. Yeah. Yes, there's no affiliates. There's no. There's nothing. And if if there ever was, then we would fully disclose it to you because yes. we're very, very, very keen on that. So um, you can rest assured that Val is a huge fan of Light and Easy all by huge, herself. I'm not a huge fan of Light and Easy. They're convenient, not the most tasty <laughs> things in the world, that's the honest truth, but they're convenient. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad we got that out of the yeah. way. Thanks for asking, Tracy, though, because lots and lots of people may have been considering that and we hadn't, we hadn't thought of it, so yes. good, good you, to know. Tracy. So I wanted to uh, kick the week off on something that we spoke about last week because we spoke about Lorem Ipsum, as you may remember. <laughs> I do remember, yes. And there's been some discussion on Twitter about the origins of Lorem Ipsum, which, you know, one of the things that you discovered that it wasn't real Latin. And but I was, it is kind of Latin. Uh, I just want to say yeah. that. It is sort of Latin. It's, it's, it, but it, they're nonsense words. I so. know, but it was, more, it was more Latin than you would have had me believe. You made me think... I was an absolute ill, <laughs> but in actual fact, all right, it's it all... is a scrambled section yes. of a text by Cicero, a first century BC Latin text by Cicero, I would just like to point out. So yes. kind of is technically a little bit Latin. But right? with words altered, added and removed to make it nonsensical, improper Latin. Okay. <laughs> okay, but still a little bit Latin. Okay, well, yes. Let's leave it at that. Latin-looking. Latin-esque. All right. All right. So in case anyone was wondering about Laura Mixon and our discussion about that, which, if you didn't hear last week's episode, is the fake Latin that designers put into pages of magazines just to fill the pages when they're designing and they don't have the real words. Yes. So... Uh, since we've brought up Cicero, I wanted to uh, talk about a link that I found on Brain Pickings by Maria Popova, and it, the, the link is called Cicero's Web, How Social Media Was Born in Ancient Rome, because a lot of people, yeah, are saying that, you know, social media is such a, a, a new thing and something that's only happened in the last few years in society, but one of the things Maria is putting forward is that, in fact, social media was it goes way back. So even in the in ancient Rome, people lived really far away from each other. They had to, you know, reign different provinces, but they had to still keep in touch with people. And what they did was they wrote letters to each other, but sometimes they were kind of the collaborative letters in a sense that you, people they they would pass from friend to friend. But as each friend got them, they would write their own thoughts onto the you know, the, 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 the parchment or whatever it was called in those days. They would write their own thoughts and add to the conversation in a sense very similar to a Facebook thread of comments. 
Um, and if they wanted to share it, just like pressing the share button on Facebook, they would actually get it copied and, oh. and, and share it that way. So uh, Facebook actually, you know, gets that model from what used to go on in ancient times. And, and that continued through the ages, you know, whether that was on pieces of paper or on, you know, rock carvings or whatever, um, until the printing press, when the printing press got to the stage where, you know, you could disseminate heaps and heaps of information to the masses, and that really was mass media, but that then shrunk the pool of um, communicators to only the tiny few who could afford printing presses. So that's when the power of communication actually got concentrated into the hands of only a few, sort of like in the 19th century, as opposed to that viral spread that occurred, you know, with these letters that got commented on. And it's now shifted back because of social media to this word-of-mouth viral element uh, that we see today and that used to exist before but then kind of went out of fashion for a while. So I thought it was a fascinating read, actually. Very interesting and all based on a book called Writing in the Wall, mm. Social Media, The First 2,000 Years by Tom Standage, which could probably be a much more interesting read than I would have imagined. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Really? And there's Cicero. She's an influential guy, isn't he? Yeah, he's a busy guy. So... <laughs> I came across another link um, from a blog called Adventures in YA Publishing, that's Young Adult Publishing, and it's by someone called Sarah Tomp, who's author of My Best Everything. And she it's, it's a Q&A with Sarah. We'll put the um, link in the show notes. But I think one of the points that she makes uh, and, and is a big fan of is that she says that you need to make friends with creative people. So her, the, the, her advice that she wants to pass on to other writers is make friends with other creative people. Writing can be so lonely and so taxing on our emotions and psyches. It's important to have those friends who, A, understand and validate, but also, B, know when you need to get out of your own head and, C, are making pretty and inspiring creations too, whether they are words or pictures or songs or sculptures from mud and feathers. So now the thing is, Al, you... You know, you've been a – you started off as a journo. So, obviously, you had your colleagues who were your journo friends. Yes. But when you decided to branch into different types of writing, like fiction, did you then make a point to get to know fiction friends, in a sense? Um, I I don't think that I consciously made a point to do that, but I started going to writing conferences mm. and – because I've always felt that, you know, if you want to know stuff, you go and talk to people who are doing it. Mm. Um, so I started going to writing conferences and different things and I met, I picked people up, you know, just as you do. <laughs> do, do you come here often kind of stuff? Um, I picked people up along the way and some of my best friends are writing friends that I've met in that way mm. and they are, it is truly because like, so she talks about also it's important to make and keep friendships with people who don't care about writing at all. Oh, yes. I have those friends. I have journo friends. And then I have this little crew that um, is uh, are some people from uh, from journalism um, and other people that I've, you know, collected at, at different writing conferences and things that I've been to. And they're just, um, 
they are just, they're my people, you know, they're the people that understand when, you know, something's going very, very wrong with my writing or I'm beating my head against a wall. I ring one of them or if I'm waiting, this is, this has been their biggest role in my life. I think poor, poor them. Um, <laughs> if I'm waiting, cause you know, I'm really bad at waiting. I've got no patience and yet writing is all about waiting. Yeah. Um, if I was waiting for someone, you know, a publisher or an agent or whatever to get back to me, I would ring them. They would talk me down from the ceiling every time <laughs> I got found myself getting totally worked up. And you do get worked up about stuff and it you have to talk to someone who understands what you're talking about because, you know, my, my husband, God love him, like I'll I'll be stressed out of my head about something and he'll just be like, yeah, but it, it's not real. <laughs> You're making it up. Can't you just make it do whatever you want to do? And it's like, no, darling, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of need to talk to someone who understands what you, you know, what that particular point of stress is all about. Um, so, yeah, I'm all about it. Apart from emotional support and support during your times of stress, which, of course, that makes sense, have you learned stuff from and about the craft of writing? Of course, because you learn – because when we get together, that's what we talk about. Mm. Like it's so boring for other people. <laughs> I would never, ever want to be there if I was not in that zone. But I, I specifically, when I go to Sydney, I seek these people out and I spend – you know, we, we I catch up with them because it's like a fix and we just talk about writing and publishing and, and all the stuff for hours and hours and hours and hours and then I go home and because you – it is lonely, you know. Mm. I you spend a lot of time by myself, and so it, it's just so good to get together with people and and discuss this stuff. The I learn about craft. Yes, we don't often get into the you know the details of what we're doing necessarily, but publishing the world of publishing. Mm, the yes. The goss, the inside goss. And, you know, everybody I know is with, you know, different publishers and different agents and different things. So there's a world of goss to be had. And to be a fly on the wall. Mm. So let's move on to another link which is very different. Uh, It's called In the Future, Robots Will Write News That's All About You. And I thought this was fascinating. It's by somebody called Clint Finley. And it's basically about robot reporters because recently... Associated Press announced it will use software to automatically generate news stories about college sports that it didn't previously cover using a content generation tool called Wordsmith, which is um, created by a company called Automated Insights. And basically what they're saying is that a lot of sports stories aren't, you know, full of narrative and colour and in-depth research. They're essentially reporting the news about who scored what, who did the first score, who got the biggest score, you know, stuff based on statistics and all of that. And so that's how this piece of software was born in a sense. But what they're saying is that this software can be evolved not to be used just for sport, but into anything that is structured around data. So any kind of data that can be analysed and that can be reported on. So that in the future, for example, presumably, it can talk about data that's very specific to you. So perhaps before you go to bed every night, it will write you a little story saying, Alison, you had five hours sleep last night, so you might want to oh, really? a little bit more sleep in. Just what you need, a and, mother. <laughs> and you took... 7,300 steps today, but your goal was 10,000, so you might want to step it up tomorrow. But it's kind of okay because in the last month, you've actually exceeded your, your step target, so you're probably, you know, going okay on average. 
and um, you travelled X number of kilometres in your car, do you think maybe it's time for you to stop for petrol <laughs> or oh, something no. like that? So quite, quite interesting because you never know, you know, the, uh, what's going to happen in the future. This, this could be um, your smartwatches these days, uh, especially this week, the Apple Watch is being released in America. And smartwatches these days can count everything from your heart rate. So I might tell you a story about, you know, stop eating that cholesterol-filled bun. Oh, <laughs> no, stop it. No. I'm you just like, no, I would take it off. I would take the watch off before I would allow it to do that to me. <laughs> There's no way. No. I don't need, I don't need another. I don't want another nanny in my life. That's the last thing I need. My brain tells me that stuff. I know <laughs> I should probably not have had the cream bun, but, you know, no. I say no. Okay. I'm saying no. You're not you, going you, to get the Apple Watch? No, you're going to get one for me because that's what you do. You're going to be the early adapter in, adopter in my life because that's your role and then, you know, you can tell me all about it and okay. I'll just laugh at you from here. <laughs> Thanks. Because you are going to get one, aren't you? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben, we'll move on to our Let's. writing craft book this week. So I've got a book um, called Spilling the Beans on the Cat's Pajamas. Do you like that title? I like that. Mm. The tagline is Popular Expressions, What They Mean and Where We Got Them. It's by Judy Parkinson. And it's just one of those great books that you dip in and out of. You don't read it from cover to cover, uh, but you dip in and out of it because they're little vignettes about sayings and, you know, where they came from. So I'll just flip open to some random saying. Uh, and not my bag. You know when you say, oh, that's really not my bag? Mm-hmm. It's a slang expression, obviously. It probably came from the American jazz scene. Bag meaning a personal style of playing. For instance, playing with a hip-hop band was not his bag. However, the phrase came into general use in, you know, America, Britain and obviously Australia, and it shares a meaning with the more common phrase, not my cup of tea, which, mm. you know, we're all very familiar with. So, yeah, not my bag. But there's other ones and they're, they're, they're good, you know. Um, no room to swing a cat. Yes. <laughs> there are various suggested origins for this phrase. Cat was actually the abbreviation of for cat of nine tails. Which, oh. you know, is the whip of not The whip, yes. Which was from the 18th century and used in the Army and Navy as well as on criminals in jail. So it, that's since space was restricted on sailing ships, whippings were carried out on deck as there was no room to swing a swing cat. cat. Mm. I like it. There you go. There you go. Oh, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. So what's our blog this week? Um. I just wanted to draw our listeners' attention to a blog. Um, it's a US blog and it's written by Jane Friedman, J-A-N-E Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not sure if we've actually spoken about this before, but I, I wanted to bring it up again because just lately um, Jane has been on fire mm-hmm. and her – she writes about the publishing world, both indie and traditional, and for um, she talks about author marketing. She talks about a whole range of different things. She wrote a great post recently called Three Types of Bios That Every Online Professional Needs, and it was, mm. you know, spot on. Her stuff is, um, as I said, at the moment particularly, she's just on fire. There's a lot of great guest posts on there, and if you're interested in writing, publishing, etc., which I'm assuming you are if you're listening to us rattle on every week, mm-hmm. um, it's really worth a look. Uh, I, I recommend it highly. Yeah, great. And actually that is a really good post 
three types of bios that every online professional needs, which is on Jane's blog, but is actually written by guests. It's a guest from, post, yeah. Yeah, Christina Katz. And they're saying, she, Christina is saying, a one-page bio, a one-paragraph bio, and a social media bio. And I think that's really useful. However, I would add to that that um, people need to realise that they can change their bio to suit the, you know, the job at hand. So if, for example, you want to have a speaking gig, you should have a speaker's bio that really emphasises your speaking experience or your speaking topics or your expertise in your speaking topics. But mm -hmm. if you are going for a fiction gig, you should be, you know, changing your bio accordingly as opposed to if you're going for a copywriting gig, you should be adjusting your bio accordingly. You don't have to stick with the same bio. You can tweak your bio to suit the particular job at hand. Yes, you can. And I also would add another huge tip for writing a bio is mm. to get someone else to do it for you. Oh, yeah, my God. I know that sounds, you know, counter counterintuitive, but I, because I, um, we've done this, mm. I wrote a bio for the Australian Writers' Centre for something. What was I doing? Something that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And um, and you got it and went, oh, no, <laughs> and rewrote it, <laughs> at which point I went, oh, I sound really good. I should totally get Val to write every bio that I ever use. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're not often that good at selling ourselves and yes. sometimes somebody else's input, just a sentence or two, can make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. That, that's so true because I know when I write bios of myself, it's the same thing. I'm a bit hopeless at it, so I try to get somebody else to have a look at it as well. Mm. So who is our writer in residence this week? Uh, well, interestingly, this week we are talking to Joanne Fedler and Joanne has uh, her latest book is called Love in the Time of Contempt and it's about raising teenagers. And I read this book and as a mother of an 11-year-old, I was filled with horror. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I really was. I thought, oh, no, can we just stop now? I don't, I, you know, stop the bus. I'm just going to get off right here. Oh, no. um, but it was quite interesting. And the, one of the most interesting things I think from this particular interview is that um, Joanne had a book that was released as um, non-fiction in Australia mm -hmm. and fiction in Germany, That's which weird. I found really, really interesting. And we, we talked about that and how that came about. She writes, obviously, um, both fiction and non-fiction, but the lines were clearly quite blurred in this particular book. So uh, we talked a lot about when you're writing a memoir um, or not a narrative non-fiction, you know, how, how far can you actually go when you've got other people, like as in her teenagers, mm. involved in the story? So it's a, it's a really interesting interview and I hope everyone enjoys it. Joanne Fedler is an author of fiction and non-fiction. Her novels include the international bestsellers The Dreamcloth and Secret Mother's Business and her non-fiction works are about love, food and parenting all the good stuff. Her new book, Love in the Time of Contempt, was inspired by her popular columns about parenting teenagers for Sunday Life magazine and is released in Australia and South Africa and also to the UK and Germany a bit further down the track. So it's all very exciting. Welcome, Joanne. Hello. Thank you, Alison. All right. Well, firstly, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background that sort of led you into this writing career? Well, Alison, I grew up in South Africa with an older sister who was born deaf and uh, from a very young age, apparently from about nine months, I was the only one who could understand her, her speech. Sure. So from a young age, I was asked to translate and interpret what she was saying. And I've always had this thing, you know, about 
people's voices and people being heard and being able to communicate. And, and that has always been, it's kind of followed me around throughout my life. I ended up being a women's rights advocate because I studied law. Uh, I set up an advocacy center to end violence against women in South Africa. And for, for a long time, I used to tell other people's stories. I used to try and uh, make submissions to, uh, to the government and to legislators um, and 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 I at all the time I actually I, I used to write stories of my own, but I never imagined that I could actually turn this into a, a career. Hmm. But it was a hobby, and and I had fun with it. Uh, I then went and studied law at Yale for I did a master's degree there, and while I was there, I met a woman who was a, a writer for the Village Voice, an amazing writer, and she was going to a, a writing retreat. An amazing place for women called Hedgebrook Women's uh, Writing Retreat, and she said to me, "You should go there one day. If you if you love writing, you should go there." So, I went back to South Africa, and I had this thing at the back of my mind that I wanted to be a writer, but it, it felt almost like a shameful thing to admit because it seemed like such a it seemed like such a waste. I didn't know that real people could actually do this. Right. And I had these application forms up on my on my uh, corkboard in front of my computer for Hedgebrook. And I used to go to writing groups and I was working on this little novel. And one, one day after reading a book that I, I read, and I'm sure most people have had this experience where you read something and you think, you know what, I can write better than this. And this has been published, right? I thought, well, you know, maybe I haven't got really anything to lose. I'm just going to try. So I submitted my best little pieces to Hedgebrook Women's Writers Colony and I got accepted and I was there for eight weeks where wow. I spent, yeah, I spent these kind eight. kind of jealous of that. Oh, right listen, def- <laughs> definitely something that you need to do uh, in your lifetime. I, I, I'm lucky I did it before I had kids because I know it's a really difficult thing to do once you have a mm. family. And I, I would love to go back, but obviously I'm waiting for my children to leave home. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we can talk about that later. So I stayed there for eight weeks and I wrote the first draft of my first novel, The Dream Cloth. And I came back to South Africa, and it's still even even having done that, it still took a number of years uh, of of me ha- then having children and immigrating from South Africa to Australia, and not knowing what to do with myself, and not wanting to requalify as a lawyer in Australia. Where my husband one day just said to me, "You know what? Just finish that bloody book that you've been working on for the past ten years." <laughs> and I was in my early thirties, and so I sat down and I finished that. Book wow. and that was the beginning of my writing career in Australia because I then got a, an agent and the book was published and uh, I got uh, an, an I got an advance for another book and since then the last ten years that's what I've been doing full time is writing. Okay, so interestingly though, so you began writing fiction. Um, yes. And your first novel, The Dream Cloth, was published in two thousand and five. Yeah. Um, and had like all that time, it was fiction that you were working on the, the stories and things that you submitted to Hedgebrook. That was all fiction. Is that correct? Yes. yes of okay. So, at what point did you switch to nonfiction? Because your most recent books have all been nonfiction, correct? 
Yes. Uh, Secret Mother's Business was published, actually, uh, which was my second book, my first Australian book, was published by Ellen and Unwin as narrative nonfiction. So yes. it, was, it was based on an evening I'd spent with uh, seven girlfriends one night when we'd all drunk too much and uh, all had small children and we're having a sleepover. And we started to talk honestly about motherhood. So I wrote it. Um, they based largely on the conversations that happened that night, uh, but I did have to fictionalize some of the content. So right. it came out as narrative nonfiction here, but it was published in Germany as as fiction. Right. And so, you know, it, it sort of straddles that interesting gray space uh, where, you know, you're not quite sure what it is. But I... I definitely love the real stories that make up people's lives. I find them so intriguing and so interesting. And, uh, you know, you just have to watch reality TV to understand that, that, that stories that, that we make up are actually stories that happen all the time around us. Mm. I'm busy reading, you know, Helen Garner's new book about uh, called that house, the house of grief, yeah. you know, about the trial where that father, uh, drove his yes. car and those three young boys his three boys died and you know you couldn't make the stuff up that she's writing about it is so interesting so then as time has, has gone by uh you know and and drawing from my own life because i'm not one of those people who are out in the world traveling and having these massive adventures those were all done in my youth yeah. <laughs> i've been mothering for the last you know 17 years yeah. and so the the dramas and the tragedies and the curiosities and the things that intrigue me are the small mundane things of my ordinary life and the lives of the people around me. And it's a, trying to make that stuff into the stuff of, um, of reading material that I, that I, that I've had to draw on. So, oh, right. so you kind I, of, I guess you're like everyone, you're sort of constantly trawling for ideas and you're looking at the pool around you basically. Yes, absolutely. And my book, Things Without a Name, is my other novel. And that was that is fiction, mm -hmm. but it is drawn from my experience working as a counsellor of raped and battered women that I, when I used to work in that field. And a lot of the stories that actually happen in that book are based on the real stories that happened, the things that I saw and witnessed during that Okay. Time. So that line between fiction and non-fiction, as you say, can be quite a grey area. How, how do you decide if a story is going to be fiction or non-fiction, or non-fiction with fictionalised bits. I mean, is there is there an actual is there an actual process for that, or is that just something that occurs during the writing? I guess it starts off with deciding whether at the beginning whether I am going to write a book of fiction or non-fiction. I have to say, fiction is is my passion, and I think I. Certainly, if I look at my books, I think that The Dream Cloth and Things Without a Name are my most beautifully written books. And I would love to be able to write more fiction for that mm -hmm. reason. I have a lot of people who say to me, why don't you write more fiction? But I'm also extremely practical and pragmatic about it. And I just know that nonfiction sells better than fiction. Right. And I'm not one of these people that wants to spend my life writing you know, books that sell a couple of hundred copies or a thousand copies here and a thousand copies there. This is how I'm, I make my living, you yeah. know, such as it is. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that if I'm writing something that there is real, that there is a real market out there. And it's quite kind of hard to test what the fiction market wants because what is fashionable now is not fashionable tomorrow and you can never test the temperature I think mm. of the fiction market you just don't know I think non-fiction is slightly more reliable in that sense in that 
there are real problems in the world and real issues that, that different audiences have. And if we are writing nonfiction, we can tap into those questions and those issues and respond to them. So I, I've become quite practical and pragmatic in my approach, and I think you can write very beautiful narrative nonfiction mm. that still satisfies that the writer's need to, you know, create, uh, and at the same time, you know, hopefully um, sell more books because that ultimately is my aim. Okay. So I, I read with interest um, in your latest book uh, that you talk, I, I think it's in the acknowledgements, about the fact that um, with Love in a Time of Contempt, that the publisher Hardy Grant approached you to write a book about parenting teens. How, how did that come about? Well, I had been writing little articles for the Sunday Life magazine, for the Sydney Morning Herald for a, a couple of years, just on moments you know, that you have as a mother with, with these creatures that are becoming no longer these little people, but that are really starting to confront you and cause you to have a crisis of identity and wonder, you know, who you are and what your role is about. And they actually are hilarious. Teenagers are hilarious and they make you so ridiculous. Mm. So they they offer a lot of material. So I was writing on and off about these little interactions that I was having with my teenagers and examining myself and and looking at myself. And I'd written a couple of articles um, for the Sunday Life magazine. And then um, Fran Berry, who is a commissioning editor at Hardy Grant, approached me and said, look, uh, we love the articles that you've been writing. Would you be interested in writing a book on the topic? So I was very quick to let her know that, of course, I don't feel like I'm qualified to write a book about parenting teenagers mm. since I'm not an expert. I'm just a mum. I have no degrees or qualifications in psychology or education or I'm not a doctor of anything. I'm just an ordinary mum and I'm making a lot of mistakes. And she was like, that's exactly why we want you to write this book yeah. because there are too many books out there by experts by experts and we're looking for something different and we love you know your writing voice we think that it connects you know that it connects to to the ordinary mum and that was how it began and then I so then I wrote the book for them and it was great fun okay (laughs) Um, so it's an interesting thing too because there is a lot of you in the book obviously because as you say you, you know you're writing about your experience but there's also a lot of your kids and with this kind of personal style of narrative, I think you have to be aware that you're carrying everybody along with you. So how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? Like, is it a, do you have to walk a fine line there a bit sometimes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is always the question when you are writing nonfiction and memoir. You've got to think so carefully about the people you're implicating, the the privacy issues, uh, especially when, you know, kids, when my kids were younger and they couldn't consent. So there are many things that I've done, you know, in, in, in writing this book. The first one is that I don't use my children's real names in the book. Um, they they have these pseudonyms that I've mm. created. So they're sort of avatars of the, of kids, although a lot of the things that they say in the book and a lot of the interactions are actual interactions I've had with my kids. I also say in the acknowledgements that not all of the stories are directly uh, have directly come from my experience with my kids because what I did in the writing of this book was I spoke to many, many, many parents. Mm. And so there is a way in which I've sort of blurred those lines. Sometimes you're not sure whether it's actually my kid or whether it's somebody else's kid. And I've just taken that story and written it as if it were mine. But I feel like when you're writing this kind of narrative nonfiction, you are almost a, car- a caricature. One is almost a caricature and mm. your teacher teenagers are caricatures of of kids going through things so I, I was very careful about 
the issues that I wrote about, and trust me, Alison, there are many things, many much funnier but far more private stories that actually happened to my kids that I would never have written about. Never, never, never. And such good material, I promise you, such good material. But I couldn't have done that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I could never write about them. The other thing was that I asked both my children to read the book. Oh, they did. That that was one of my questions. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, my daughter, uh, she read the book. And she was very unhappy initially with the chapter on periods. Mm. She said, no, you can't write that. So I had to rewrite that chapter, which I was happy to do. I mean, the truth is that whenever I use anybody's story, I always send them the draft of what I've written. I ask them if it is, if they're happy with what, how I've expressed it, if they would like me to use their real name or to change the name. And then I always incorporate the changes. And if anybody said to me for any reason, even if they'd shared their story with me willingly, look, I've changed my mind. I just don't want that in. Or could you leave that out? Or that is very hurtful. Without a doubt, I would just remove it. I wouldn't ask a question. I wouldn't argue to keep it in. I'm so conscious of Mm. of those issues. Now, my daughter read it, so I I changed the the chapter that she wanted me to change. And I offered it to my 14-year-old son who was like, yeah, no, I don't have time for that. And um, I got my husband to read it on his behalf to ask him if he thought it was okay if I had violated my son's privacy too much. And he was fine with it. He said it's perfectly okay. Even though you stay, that you think that you're a better parent than he is? That makes me laugh <laughs> no, so no, no. I, no, I never said that I'm a better parent than he is. Did I say that? Alice? There was I, a, I that uh, there's a line in there that made me laugh so much. And it was the business with the fevers and things like that. And I was like, okay, yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, I'm not saying I'm a better parent no, than him. Not. I just notice things that he doesn't notice. That's, That's right. all. That's all. That's exactly That's right. Yeah. So um, you talk about the fact that you fictionalise some of the situations in the book, which I found really quite interesting because I guess my question with that too is how do you know how far to go with that? You know, in the sense that like how when do you stop making stuff up? Like when do you how, – how do you know where the boundaries are of the fiction and the, and the fact? Look, I don't, I, I wouldn't say I've actually made stuff up. Mm. What, I mean, all, all the interactions, all the, the stories that I share are true stories. Yeah. Uh, the, the question is, you know, did my daughter exactly use those words when she spoke to me? Did she do exactly that? Uh, th- that's where the, you know, the fiction yeah. aspect comes in. It's, you know, more bringing the whole story to life. It's more uh, perhaps conflating two events when they happened in separate time zones they didn't happen exactly in that order that sort of thing yeah, okay. more than you know actually just making stuff up I and mean, I don't think I would just suck something out of you know the air and, and then claim that, that that was that was true but for example there are chapters there where I have attributed things to my children that have happened to other people's children so that so that it seems like that happened to my child yes. and vice versa too, where things have happened to my child where I've attributed that to, to, to someone else. Right. Just, you know, for the sake of protecting, you know, people's privacy so that it doesn't become that everybody gets to feel like they know me or my children, which is what happens when people read a book like this. They, they really do see it as, a, as, as if they, they feel like they're looking straight through a clear glass at you and they know who you are mm. without understanding that, of course, that any writing is a construct. It is not a true, you know, representation of the human behind it. It, it, it is a cr- crafted piece of writing. Mm. So, uh, you know, there are things that I hide, there are things that I reveal, but uh, it's not it's not always the full picture. 
Okay. Which yeah. is a very good thing for people to remember, I think. <laughs> Particularly those who read blogs. Um, <laughs> so um, with this book, you're also branching sort of out from the page and you're creating a Facebook community. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, while I was writing this book, I... You know, I, le- I always learn so much when I'm writing a book. You always start off with an idea of what you think you're going to do, but you don't realize how much you change in the writing, which I always find while writing a book feels like, you know, such a self-help course in a way. You, you really do get to explore yourself. And while I was writing this book, of course, I, I did so much research on uh, on what's going on for teenagers these days and became more and more convinced as I was writing this book that parents are absolutely crucial to help our children survive and navigate these this this terrible kind of cyber world that they seem to be so locked into and a friend of mine whom I I I write about in this book Kate who's a 14 year old son JP committed suicide she has been a great teacher uh of how of parent for me during the, the writing of this book about what goes on for parents and how and how easy it is for a teenager to really just decide they don't want to be here. I think the our kids are a generation of sad, lonely and anxious kids. And I almost became a little bit evangelical about this belief that the answer to so many of the issues that our kids are facing, whether it is depression and anxiety and eating disorders, the answer is that we as parents need to be more connected. We need to be more grown up. Mm. And and the more research I did and the more I looked at myself and the more thinking I did about it, I, I became convinced of this fact. But I also felt that, that that parents are quite disconnected from each other. We're all working. We're all sort of sucked up in our own worlds. I wanted to create uh, an online community where people could feel connected to each other and be reminded of little things that we all can do to stay connected to our teenagers. So I launched this campaign called A Million Connected Parents. And and I'm I've I've got various projects that I'm that I'm trying to set up around that as well, where I've had little bracelets made in South Africa that have a bead, bead on it that say one in a million and always be connecting. And the proceeds of of those bracelets will go to uh, to the women who make those bead those beaded bracelets, mm-hmm. as well as to a foundation in South Africa that supports teenagers at risk. So I I wanted you know parents to be able to buy a little bracelet for themselves and one for their teenager just as a little act of connection with with their teenagers because it's one of the complaints that I heard so much from parents is how difficult it is to to connect to their teenagers how their teenagers push them away and there's just no way in and I just think small little gestures like leaving a little bracelet on a on a on somebody's bed or you know at, at their computer something like that it's such small little things but they're just ways of helping us to stay engaged with our kids and uh, for them to remember that we're there for them and we have their backs wow so that's um which is amazing and that sounds terrific but i i wonder too with with that sort of thing because that's obviously going to take a bit of time to manage and organize and i guess you've also got you know promotion for the book and various other things that you do and I know that you do teaching how do you balance writing time with all those other things I don't know Alison that is (laughs) such a good question (laughs) look I have to say that I really last year what I did was I did a business I did a business course I had had a book that had come out uh, in 2012 with one of the top international publishing houses that 
absolutely bombed. It was a disaster. And I swore that I would not go through that again, that I would not spend two years of my life writing and trying to to offer the world something of value only to have it sort of die on the shelves. In fact, it didn't even make it to the shelves. It was like you couldn't even find the book when it came out. And so I invested in a in a business course last year and I decided that if I do anything, it's got to have a life. It's got to have a way of supporting me and my family. And that's what I, that's what I have been doing. I have, I spend say a year writing and then I, I've realized that in order for us to get our books into the hands of readers, we cannot rely on publishers. It, it, it has to be author driven. And I, this is one of the things that I actually teach other writers is how to drive your own process and how to make sure your book gets into the hands of as many readers as possible and not to rely on publishers and to see what it is that you can do because the whole model and the whole way the publishing world is working is changing. It's no longer that publishers are the king. I believe readers are the king. And the way that we get our book into the hands of readers is to connect with readers as much as possible. And so the authors who think, I'm just going to write a book, get a publisher, and that's how it's going to be like I used to be. That's how, what I used to think. I think that that is a very old and it's a dying model and that if we want to be authors in the new awakened social media world, we have to get new skills and we have to spend some time writing and we have to spend some time uh, connecting with our with our audience. And okay. that's what I'm doing for the next Six months. Okay. So with that, um, I mean, because people talk a lot about the idea of the author platform and that kind Mm. of stuff. um, Is your idea of connecting and promotion, is that an online thing or an in-person thing? I mean, how, what, what sort of things will you be doing? I mean, beyond the Facebook community, obviously, which is a massive thing. um, Do you blog? Do you talk? Do you, what do you do? Yeah, look, I don't blog. That is one thing that I that I don't. I don't have my own blog. I blog for a, a, a blog called Mind Body Green, which is an American blog, which has a, a huge readership, yeah. which I think is one way of you know getting yeah. building up our our networks and and that sort of thing. And I do and I do think it's worthwhile doing some form of blogging, even if it's not one's own. Yeah. And to choose one social media platform that one likes and enjoys and feels really connected to, for example, like I can't tweet. I don't, I don't understand Twitter. I've tried. I love Facebook. Facebook is something that I relate to. I connect to it and I connect to people through that. And that, through that, I actually ran uh, what I call an early adopter campaign for the release of my new book, which is where I put a call out to my community and said, I would, I'm looking for 200 readers who would be interested in um, getting a free copy of my book the month before it comes out and who will then write a review of the book before the book comes out so that when the book comes out it's almost like there's like a bridal party waiting to greet Mm -hmm. it rather than the bride pitching up and there being nobody there which is normally what happens when a book comes out and because I have this very connected Facebook community of not that many people it's about two and a half thousand people that I've you know developed over the years Uh, I had 200 people put their hands up I convinced my publisher to give them all a free copy of the book before, a month before it came out. And then by the time the book came out, there were about 78 reviews on Amazon. And for that reason, the book went to number one. Um, and it has been sort of hanging around number one on Amazon Kindle for the last couple of weeks. And that has simply to do, not, not to do with me, but to do with the, with the engagement that uh, I was able to get from my uh, Facebook community uh, around, uh, around this book. So I do that. Of course, 
course, I do lots and lots of speaking. I respond to all my emails. I respond to all my Facebook messages. I spend quite a bit of time connecting with people because you simply need to have a handful of, of, of true fans who love what you do and who will help you spread the word. We can't do it on our own. So you have to write stuff that connects with people and you have to connect to those people and they become part of your tribe, you know, Seth yeah. Godin's tribe. Yeah. I've learned so much from him and, and I think that that is the key to getting your book into the hands of as many readers as possible and not even necessarily if they pay for it. I don't mind giving stuff away. I think it's, it's part of it. So we gave away 200 free copies of the book in the hope that those people will then go and tell other people about it and hopefully some people will buy the book well which is a great idea and it's obviously <laughs> paid off really well it's working beautifully in this specific situation <laughs> hopefully it has although we haven't got figures yet on sales but it certainly has helped with the amazon ranking and of course you know all of those things count and yeah. i think one has to have a very broad view of all the different things that one should attempt and to get out of one's comfort zone because yeah. i'm so all the stuff is, can I just say, so far out of my comfort zone. I, I, I don't love doing all of the stuff. I do love connecting with readers. But I, I have learned that this is what is required. And it's part of the job of being a writer, doing all of this kind of stuff, putting yourself out there and um, thinking uh, in a different kind of way about my books. Because I would rather that my Books and the message of the book spread rather than, you know, that, that people are going to buy, actually spend the money on the book. So I'd much rather that uh, the message of the book was spread and that in turn creates a, se a sense of your presence and your profile and your personality online. Mm. And that in turn down the line, you know, can get you a speaking gig somewhere. Mm. Um, these things are not really measurable. And so I'm not obsessed with, you know, the numbers and, and, and all of this kind of thing. But I think one has to have a kind of a big vision about how all the pieces fit together and to spread yourself over those pieces so that you are spreading your message, not just through your book, but through some social media platforms, through speaking engagements and engaging with people in a real and vulnerable way. Okay. Well, Let's just finish up because we do like to finish up with the top three tips. Let's finish up with top three tips for people who want to be writers, you know, who want to have a writing career. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, when, when I take people on writing retreats, the, the only thing that I really care about by the end of the time that I'm with them is that they understand this concept of your writing voice. And I believe that the, the start of having a, a, to write a fantastic book, a book that hasn't been written before, is that you have to nail your own writing voice. And you have to do whatever it takes to find that. And that means that you have to have courage. You have to have the courage to be vulnerable. You have to have the courage to go as deep as you can inside yourself and to not necessarily write about your pain, even if you're writing about fictional characters, but certainly to write from that place because that is what makes your voice utterly unique. So that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing would be uh, that it is really important to get feedback and support during the writing process. It is all too easy to sit for years and years and years and rehash and re-edit the same stuff over and over again. But if you don't ever get a mentor or somebody who can give you constructive, helpful feedback about what works, what doesn't work, where your craft needs, you know, needs to lift its game, uh, how you can engage emotionally better with your characters, uh, you're just going to be treading water, I think. So I think getting feedback and support is so important for, for writers. 
And finally, I would say that uh, I, the most important thing is simply to commit to the process and to be conscientious about learning the craft because it's something that can take a long time and not to ever give up. Uh, it takes it can take a long time before we ever get a lucky break. I would also say don't you know regard getting a publisher as the be all and end all of your writing career the way the world works these days is that there are so many ways for you get to get your writing out there. The social media and, you know, the online world means that, that we have numerous platforms for getting our writing out there and that the book market is changing. So, you know, be at the forefront of that change. Don't get hung up on any one thing. Do the work and uh, good luck. I think- <laughs> I think, um, I think, you know, people who persevere and people who really stay with the process. I mean, just my dad spent 20 years writing his book. <clears throat> he got rejected by many publishers. And finally, after 20 years, <clears throat> he's he's finished his book and his memoir is coming out. He has just been released. So I, I think that that's the kind of commitment one needs if you're going to write is to just keep at it and know that this is something that you have to do. It has to be a hunger inside you that's never going to be satisfied until it's done. And that's what's going to carry you over the line. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Joanne. I really appreciate it. And best of luck with the book and getting the message out there and all the other things that you've got going on. Thank you so much, Alison. I really appreciate being part of this. Great interview. Yeah, it was really, really interesting. And, and, you know, she's obviously, she's had so much experience and she's got so much going on that it's, mm. um, I love talking to people like her. There's, you know, she's, she treats her writing as a business. Mm, like definitely. it's a business. Yeah. Do you yeah. treat your writing as a business? Oh, uh, I think half and half. Like part of me just writes stuff because I really, I just, you know, mm. want to, mm. which is not always, the, not always the most um, business savvy way of going about things. <laughs> Um, but, but it feeds your creative soul. Oh, it does. And uh, and uh, the other half of my, you know, half of me is incredibly sensible and is always, you know, got one eye on the business. And mostly that's my freelancing side of things. Yes. So with fiction, I think you write, you know, she writes nonfiction because there's more money in nonfiction as far as she's concerned. Right. I write fiction because yeah. I really like it. Mm-mm-mm. Definitely. Simple. Yeah. So uh, over the past week, I don't know, the whole world seems to have gone case study mad because Hmm. I reckon five different people have asked me in the past week my tips on how to write a good case study. And um, so I thought I would put a link in the show notes to a post that I wrote a couple of years ago actually um, called How to Write a Powerful Case Study because the principles still apply even though this was a couple of years ago. And I think that we're seeing this explosion in the number of people who are writing case studies because of the explosion in content marketing. And yes. Pe- yeah, people are realising, well, companies are realising that it's really powerful not just to include a testimonial from their customers saying, love your product or you're great or whatever, but to actually include a case study from a, a, a bigger story. So yes. there's some storytelling involved uh, of, of their customer. And so just a few um, really quick points. If you're writing a case study, you need to start with the basics. You know, put it this way. You know how everyone loves watching The Biggest Loser? I know you're going to say not everyone loves watching The Biggest Loser. I have no comment to make it this time, Valerie. (laughs) But many people watch it. It's a very popular show. And Mm. one of the highest rated 
episodes in the whole series is the finale. And why is that? Because people get to see the before and after. Mm. Everyone loves a transformation. Mm. So that's the same with a case study. You don't have to be losing weight. You don't have to be, you know, doing anything like that. Regardless of the situation, start off, you know, with the basics of who they are, what they're about, but then start off with their situation before and then talk about the challenges they face but then you talk about the sol- the solutions that that you have helped the company has helped provide mm. and then you talk about the outcome so you have the before the journey and the after and that's the that's a really good um, foundation for a case study if you don't have one already yes so, just my and also yes one other thing a call to action can also be useful if you're writing for a company you know interested in how you know Jenny did XYZ became a world champion skier you know call this number kind of thing we can help you yes there you go lovely so have you been writing love, case studies this week? You know, I love a case study. <laughs> My life is full of case studies. I'm always doing case studies. In the case of feature writing, uh, you you know, most stories that you write, if you're writing a, a feature that's not just an information-based, you know, how to pay off your credit cards, yes. or even, even if you were writing that, you may actually include a case study in a box or something. Yes. But people like real-life examples. They want to know that what you're saying is actually happening out a a happening out there in the world b possible you know whatever whatever it is you're saying so if you're let's go back to our credit cards if you're writing mm. a piece on how to pay off your credit cards popping in a case study of someone who's done it mm. um, how they went about it you know w- how badly they were off at the start and where they ended up at the end mm. is a is a really really good way to make your story interesting because let's face it. 800 words on how to pay off your credit cards could be incredibly dull if you didn't treat it the right way. But pretty much every feature I've ever done in my whole life that was more than 500 words involved um, at least one case study, if not two or three. For sure, for sure. So it's good good to get good at them. So case studies aside. (laughs) Yes. I'll be doing more case studies this week. What's happening, apart from you doing more case studies, what's happening with you this week? Well, I think the most exciting thing that's happening with me is that I'm gearing up, obviously, for the launch of Prisoner of the Black Hawk, which Yay. is the second book in the Mapmaker Chronicles. We're now sort of halfway through the through the month. Next uh, week, I'm heading off to Somerset Celebration of Literature, which is a children's literary festival in Queensland. I'm very excited about that. I've got lots and Ooh. lots of talks to do and different things. Um, but what are you talking the- about? Uh, I talk. Do you know what I talk about? I, I obviously I you know I mentioned the book once yeah. or twice. <laughs> I talk about um, writing for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about where ideas come from, and I talk about how they can use how they can look for them around them, and mm-hmm. how when they're confronted with a blank page, um, you know, and their teacher says write something how they can find something to write about. So I talk about that mm. and then I go into a little bit about the three most important things in a story mm-hmm. and um, and then we have a lovely discussion about how to write a book, which involves me thro- holding up my manuscript with 80,000 Post-it notes on it saying, you see those? They're edits because they hate editing. Like mm. nobody, nobody, nobody likes editing, let's face it. But if you're sort of under the age of about 40, you particularly dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So we talk about that. But, um, yes, yeah, so that's what I'll be doing. But the, the book's available for pre-order um, at the moment and I will put the link in the show notes. And, yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm answering questionnaires about, you know, what my favourite book was when I was growing up as a child and stuff like that. Exciting. Because that's what I get asked all the time and I had to really think about the answer. 
<laughs> I'm ready now, though. Okay, throw Good. throw them at me. I'm ready. What about you? What are you up to? Uh, actually, I'm going to Queensland too, so I might wave to you as I oh, fly by. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, um, going to Brisbane um, to do a keynote at a uh, at, at an event about 500 people, I think. Um, so that should be fun. It's about how do you build your profile. Uh, but apart from that, I'm gearing up for our launch in a week or so of our course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Uh, the office has been filled with lots of YouTube videos about murder and books about murder. And, um, yeah, yeah. I've learned a lot about crime and murder. Uh, so if anyone's interested in writing about crime and murder, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes or just go to murdercourse.com. And um, what you what you can do there is register your interest because if you register your interest, you will get a very special pre-launch offer. So mm. rush out and do that. Rush out immediately. And mm. do- yes. But that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Thank you to everybody uh, for all of your questions and comments and uh, you know tweets and shares on social media. We really appreciate. Thank you for keeping us in the what's hot section of iTunes. Uh, that means more to us than you know. Yes. And um, if you have any questions, email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. Of course, you can find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au. Alison's website is? alisontate.com. And you're on social on Twitter as? At, at Al Tate, T-A-I-T. And I'm at Valerie Koo. So thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to chatting to you next week. We do. 